Welcome to Blunt Business on CannabisRadio.com. Thank you for joining us for the program. Make sure to go ahead and subscribe and share and follow, like, and subscribe. All those wonderful things. Apple Podcasts, Spotify. You might catch the show on YouTube. But wherever you find this show, I'm really thankful that you listen to this each and every week. So one of my featured guests. Now, they lead public health-focused research projects designed to better understand and medicate problematic cannabis use. My other guest is an implementation specialist that get dedicated to bringing evidence-based best practices to the evolving field of cannabis. I want to introduce you to this company, this group here, because we're really doing something really fascinating. It's Cannabis Public Policy Consulting, and I'm here with their director of research, Dr. Michael Sofis, and their director, Mackenzie Slade. Thank you both for being on the program. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. Thank you so much for here. So CEPBC, which probably refer to in the acronym at some points to you know save a little time, or Cannabis Public Policy Consulting has launched with ambitions to embed advanced data science, public health values, and sustainability into the public conversation on cannabis. Now, it's being led by bold public health professionals and former controlled substance regulators, and their goal is simple, provide policymakers and cannabis-adjacent businesses with the data to predict and solve legalization challenges. It's because we want people from, so again, the public health field being brought into the space, the outside help, you know, where it's not going to be, there are people obviously with the cannabis industry, we always need more people, whether it's from the corporate structure side to macro manage a large company an MSO to those mm-hmm. that are coming in from, you know, either legal people to help in the social equity space of various sectors. But this right here for me is still about finding those ways to get legalization to move forward, making that connection, bridging the gap. So talk to me, what is the real role of CPPC and what it is that you feel like is the void that you're filling here with this? That's a great question. So um, CPPC, you know, we have been in the field for about three years now, almost four, um, where we got our first contract um, in 2019, and it was really to help a state uh, legalize, really implement a, a regulatory infrastructure, um, including helping with writing the regulations. Um, you know, back then, it was one of the one of the first states to legalize. And back then, we didn't really have best practices to pull from because it was so new. Um, Colorado had only just stood up a few years prior, and we were still learning as we go, um, particularly around regulations, right, that those very nuanced pieces of policy. Um, and so the deeper we got into this field, the more we started to get into the, the arenas of, okay, if we can't find the best practices, we have to start collecting them ourselves. And so when we started to become a firm in, I think we filed in 20, early 2020, um, where we were, you know, just moving away from just being sort of ad hoc consultants in the field to being an actual, uh, concerted effort of a firm. We started to collect our own best practices to fill that gap to say, okay, you know, we're at a point of which um, it's kind of inexcusable to not have research on this. Um, and then in 2021, when Michael started to join uh, the the firm, Dr. Sokus over here, uh, we got our first contract to do original research and to identify something that has been really, um, I think underestimated in the field, which is just cannabis use prevalence. Uh, we were hired to do a demand study for the state of New Mexico to establish plant count, uh, like capitation for the state. Um, and that in that project, we realized that uh, cannabis use is dramatically underestimated. 
And if that's the pre- the sort of predicator for an entire program's policy, right? Like if that's the sort of the, the that percentage of prevalence sets the capitation for how many plants in the state, if you use the wrong number of percentage, you're going to have a market that doesn't meet demand, right? And so we we set out to sort of fill the gaps of what is currently being used as a sort of number of use, um, like prevalence, the demand, supply, the whole thing. Um, and how can we sort of fill the gaps to make sure that it is empirical and evidence-based so that these programs can su- not just survive, but thrive. Because of the fact that you came, that your your crew has come from the area of public health, government-funded medicine and treatments for those that it's available to the entire public, but not only that, but also to the public that would not be able to afford private care in the way this is more of a a public kind of outreach, correct? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, the, the questions around medicinal cannabis use and just like cannabis as a medicine are probably a little bit more um uh, like clinical base. And just to be clear, we're not clinicians, so we don't sort of make any claims around the use. Right. Um, but that, to, but to be frank, yes, um, equity as it relates to the medical programs often means health equity um, and the accessibility and the um, price availability for consumers who need it for pain uh, or other conditions, of course, based on statute. But yeah, that's a, that's a vital piece of it. For me, it was just trying to go and put that together, it, just kind of like wrap my head around this, because for me, this is all fact finding when it comes to this idea of public policy consulting. So what also drew the attention that I learned about uh, was a spring 2022 pilot report announcement for your regulatory determinants of cannabis outcome survey. Pretty comprehensive. And the findings show initially of the top findings is that. of all individuals 16 years of age or older in in legal cannabis states in the U.S. are estimated to have used cannabis in the past month. Let me just rephrase that again now. 39% 16 years and older and what, 39 medical or adult use states that have cannabis legalized in some way, shape, or form have used. That's a pretty big number. So, I I mean, trying to go and even think about what that would calculate as to how many millions of people that would be overall. I, if I had to get, put the, get a calculator in front of me, <laughs> then there's also then much higher than previously thought. You made that point across in this study or this announcement, which will lead to the study, but we'll talk about the survey. We'll talk about that in a little bit. And then 30% of all cannabis access in states with adult use laws. So again, adult use as opposed to medical. So we're talking 11 states. 39% remain illicit in states with only medical use laws, and the U.S. is likely rap- rapidly approaching 100 million residents who use cannabis at least monthly. Well, there's 100, 100 million. So that's a major market that you're identifying. If we really wanted to get a scope of how big the industry is, why we know there are investors waiting to get into the wings of this, and why legalization, there's been so many billions of dollars of lobbying money being added to make support, whether it is you know, the MORE Act, if it's the Safe Banking Act, or now we have the CLIMB Act when it comes to cannabis, cannabis banking and reform. That's the scope and the size that you're identifying here with this. And in that report, you also present initial findings among 13,000 U.S. residents ages 16 and older from the general population in states with legal cannabis laws. 
So what you're really bringing us is the real scope. It's that real tangible number that I don't know if, uh, how many other agencies have been able to put that together. But talk to me about the onus there of those stats alone. Yeah, I think the, the idea is like if you use really the best practice sort of uh, survey methods, Jorge, to really capture what's going on and you do it in a really comprehensive manner uh, and you do it and you release the results right away. So what happens is a lot of federal surveys are they release the data two and sometimes three years after. So when they say, oh, the most recent report's out, well, that's from people's cannabis use in 2020, right? And as we know, that's that's a lifetime ago, right? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, I mean, like God knows what, you know, what has happened since then. And, and, you know, and, and we've all experienced a lot of change. And so, and so has cannabis, right? So people use a lot more now and they were using more then as well than these federal reports were saying. And so we, we run our data. We get our survey data every quarter. So every like three months. And, you know, our most recent one was two months ago, and we're going to be doing another one in about three weeks here. And so what it allows us to do is get people up to the date numbers. It's a mixture of sort of better methods and better survey methods, and then just much more rapid and much more up to date that allows us to say, look, cannabis is prevalent. It's, and it's, it's, the scope is, is all encompassing. We're talking about a hundred million people. Justin, you know, um, that's, that's a very, I think, fair and, and maybe, you know, estimate of what we're seeing, what we, you would expect there to be in terms of numbers of individuals who are using. And you think about that, you think about the average person who uses cannabis in the past month is probably using somewhere between 10 and 20 days, maybe 15 to 25 grams a month. You know, you start throwing this stuff in there and that's a lot of cannabis, right? And, you know, and that's not saying that that's good or bad. It's just saying it's pervasive. It's a part of our everyday society now, much more than I think people have appreciated. One, almost one out of three people in the United States, and this is not even available in every state, is it could be using cannabis at least once a month. That's that's the point being brought here. Exactly. And on top of that, it's also the sample size. 13,000 is quite a big number to get. And I'd love to be able to know what, what, what it is about doing this quarterly survey and being able to go ahead and put really the, the kind of effort you have to get to go ahead and get that information. Because that's a lot of people to bring on board that have to go ahead and do these calls and poll all these people. Because on political polls, you might hear during presidential elections, they might have, you know, a couple of thousand, but not tens of thousands like this. Yeah. So what we do is I, I don't want to give up too much of uh, you know, secrets of the sauce, but I I can tell you that um, what we do is we part of it is actually asking people. We don't just ask about things like oh how much how often do you use or things like that. Part of it's actually we do also include actually somewhat ironically political polling related stuff. So people's attitudes about you know cannabis lounges, you know secondhand smoke type stuff. What what is your opinion? I mean, we actually actively want people's engagement and insight into this. It's not just about um, us providing stats for ourselves and our business. It's about including individuals. And to that end, we also um, actually. Uh, make sure that we overweigh. So we, we purposely sample a higher number of people than is, is present in the population that are from underrepresented groups. Um, that can be, you know, and so that's really another thing that we do as well to make sure that we're being equitable and, and whose voice is being heard when we're understanding these statistics. Um, and so, yeah, that's hopefully that, that answers that question. Yeah. And then also, is there anything you can tell me in terms of to be able to generate that many respondents? Um, is it more online than it is phone calls? 
Yeah, it's exclusively online. So this is a, it's a, it's a, I, I can, what I can tell you is what we try to do is we work with a provider who helps us provide access, like access to these participants who are, they get it from a bunch of different digital sources, right? So I could be like, it could be email. I could be playing like, like an app game. I could be doing a bunch of things online, right? We all do this with our phones. Sure all the time. And so it, again, it's meant to be inclusive, real world data. People, you know, we're not calling people, you know, um, you know, who, who on a landline and expecting, you know, and, and thinking that that's representative, right? Thinking that that's actually being equitable in today's world. And so I think that's, um, you know, by engaging in this, you know, real time, real world digital insight, um, d- digitally driven, uh, you know, insights and, and sort of survey methodology, we can really get more people get better insights um, and, and actively involve folks more in a more equitable way. So I'm here with Dr. Michael Sophus and Mackenzie Slade. They're both respectively director of research and director of cannabis public policy consulting. And if you want to le- learn more, the full website's there, cannabispublicpolicyconsulting.com. If you want to learn more about that while we go to break, we'll be back, back after a short break. Rolling into some sponsors, but we'll be right back with more Blunt Business. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Blunt Business. I'm here with Dr. Michael Sophus and Mackenzie Slade with Cannabis Public Policy Consulting here on Blunt Business. And I want to go more into the pilot announcement report that was made recently, or the RDCOS, which is Regulatory Determinants of Cannabis Outcome Survey. Now, before the break, we were talking about the breakdown and really generating the respondents to go and give the information that you've gotten, which has been so uh, amazing that we already got just of the top findings we mentioned about that we have close to 100 million cannabis users monthly in the United States. The scope of the market, now we're going to talk about the business side of the market in just a moment, but uh, I just wanted to make the point that I would imagine that a survey like this kind of survey would be much easier, much more, would be much more reasonable for respondents to go ahead and fill out because of the fact that it's not a political survey. And it's not some other survey that's kind of just going on the privacy, you're just learning more about cannabis use and people want to go ahead and give that information out in this in this guide online, which would be much easier to go and do as opposed to trying to do cold calling with some kind of an agency doing that kind of thing. And I'm glad that's being done as that way. So more on this report announcement. The report also suggests that the United States is rapidly approaching, as we said, 100 million residents who use it at least monthly. And in terms of cannabis sales, I want to just make this point. In 2021, annual cannabis sales reached $26.5 billion and are expected to reach $32 billion in 2022. This is according to New Frontiers Data's information. They calculated the compound annual growth rate of the legal cannabis industry to be 11% between 2020 and 2030, ultimately putting the industry's worth at more than $57 million by 2030. So for those that are looking for a burgeoning and growing industry of almost $100 million users and the kind of money that can be made from those users to the scope of 57 billion dollars within the next by the next decade talk to me about how the industry should navigate towards growth and expansion 
while waiting policy relief and banking reform legalization in the meantime. So, Ken, do you want to get there? Well, I'll, I'll start. I so they, so the numbers you quoted where you said that they uh, they said twenty six billion in twenty twenty and, and fifty seven in twenty thirty. Is that right? By twenty thirty, fifty seven fifty seven billion. Yes. Yeah, I think that's pretty conservative, right? If it's only doubling in ten years, that's mm-hmm. I would be pretty surprised if that's if that's not much larger. I mean, I need to do some, right. some more analysis on that. But I mean, if you think about it, like literally ten years from now. That seems kind of crazy that it wouldn't at least more than double, right? Um, anyway, regardless, though, I, I do think um, it's really tough to, to present those sort of 10-year outlooks because it just depends on things like, you know, the, the, bank, the Banking Act. I think the Banking Act, having a Banking Act is, is arguably the most crucial um, to providing, like, a, you know, a safe environment um, to, you know, have these, these stores and dispensaries. Um and it's it's just completely adding tons of additional costs and burden to uh, you know store owners and dispensary owners and licensees. And I think without um, that sort of that sort of piece, it's going to be really hard to grow. Um, so I think it depends on you know your perspective in terms of the actual what other policies you, you want to go over. But I think that the Banking Act is critical to, to experiencing growth that is safe. It's a win-win, right? There's no bad part of that, um, and so I think that's important to add. And the you know, part of it too is they're probably not even considering the part of what would happen once certain legalization measures, those levers of legalization, whether it is Safe Banking or the Climb Act or eventually the More Act, are pushed and they're pushed down, and then we can see what the real difference is. Maybe New Frontiers just basically basically off of if everything stays status quo, but I don't think we're going to stay status quo. I still think that. There's there's too much being happening right now to where even the Safe Banking Act or the Climb Act, they tried to put into a Chinese com- competition bill for those to good what I think bill to have about I think the funding was for about fifty billion dollars for semiconductors to kind of take away, you know, building chips in the United States and manufacturing them here for various things, as opposed to waiting on China to go and do that for us because of all the issues we now have back with back and forth with them politically. But then there's the other part where the kind of money that could also change hands with the climb bill. And I'm going to mention this on another program a little more comprehensively, but I want to just briefly tell the listeners about this new bipartisan cannabis banking bill. One of the things that really is, is really interesting about it is the capital lending and investment for marijuana businesses act. And it also is a bipartisan bill, by the way. But the one thing that would also stand out that would make, that would definitely say, Dr. Sophus, your point exactly, it's not going to be doubled in, in less than 10 years. It should be much more than that because of the fact that if this bill were enacted, it would enable cannabis businesses to access a wider range of banking services like the Safe Banking Act. But more importantly, it would allow all these companies to be listed on the New York Stock Exchange, NASDAQ, and other national securities exchanges, providing them with a chance to generate capital and grow. So just the fact of being publicly listed and being publicly traded, the more money that's going to come into that should also take into account then does that compound annual growth rate. What do you think? So if you had a good look at it yourself, what would be a much more reasonable growth rate that you think should happen by 2030? You know, I know you have to do the research, but what if you say it's not double, what do you think it should be more like? Yeah, that's a tough one. I, I would I would want to look at the data to make a, a more comprehensive. But I, what I can tell you is, generally speaking, um, these rates aren't necessarily the rates of growth aren't usually linear. So 
even if you start adding on some states, um, you know, within a state that goes from year one to year two to year three, usually that those growth rates are not particularly linear. Usually there's some point where it, if it's not, you know, it, it curves up really rapidly, um, or it, it's so steep linear that it's not, it, it, it almost doesn't even look like a line, right? Like it's just, it rises so quickly. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's assuming, right? Like if you don't add on states on. So even if we're talking, forget about like the, you know, actual banking act part of it, just from adding, naturally states are going to legalize right adult use in the coming years in that next decade and so just that alone um i mean i guess my you know again i would do i would want to do much more data analysis because i haven't actually done this this exact estimate yet but i would definitely think it's more than two times so maybe three times or four times is probably a, a good sort of benchmark to, to right consider. i wouldn't expect you to give a number right now yeah. obviously down the line but yeah. like you said it was just what did point out to me is that you feel like it would be definitely more yeah, absolutely. Now, the other thing I want to ask about in this survey is, which I'm going to just read again, Regulatory Determinants of Cannabis Outcome Survey, the RDCOS. So real quickly, before I move along, can you tell me about visibility and when the survey will be ready for the public to consume? Yeah, so the visibility we provide reports, sometimes they're like two pagers, sort of common everyday language that we're going to be increasingly providing on the on our website that are free. And it provides, you know, quick infographics, quick summary stats, right, that we've talked about, like the 39% that used in the past month. And this is in, in part just to be transparent about what's actually going on. Uh, so people are informed. Uh, in terms of participation in the survey, uh, moving forward, we're going to be looking at uh, the next round, trying to make this something that people can actively participate in if they want, um, and you know, take the survey themselves, um, you know, and provide you know access to either on our website or through another form. Um, and so we will be working on that, um, you know, in the, in the coming months here. Now, I want to move along and talk about where you, where this report actually talks about, despite trends towards lower illicit sales in legal cannabis states. The RDCOS shows there is still plenty of work to be done on curbing illicit markets. Now, there was recently a series of panel discussions and presentations at the first day of the Cannabis World Business Exposition. They collectively exclaimed the illicit cannabis market will persist in states uh, to legalize or, or have burdened the lawful industry with overregulation. There will, in, in others, it will persist to slow or legalize and continue to burden a lawful industry with overregulation. So the thing is, is that we know that there are legacy operators, those that have been prior to legalization in said states. There were those that were, that might not have, uh, they might have been still producing, distributing, and selling cannabis that would be at a level that would still be reaching regulatory standards if they were under an MSO or under a proper business. And we know there's a lot of talk about how some of these legacy operators should get the access to social equity licenses. And there's that part where we need to get have that conversation about it. Now, New York State has been the forefront in their legalization efforts to offer that social equity, including to legacy operators. I know that's something we're talking about where um, there's an interview we're setting up for our Empire series that they discuss. Uh, it's an organization called Urban Aroma. They talked about how those legacy operators should be able to be entitled to cannabis social equity licensing just like anybody else because they were there much way before. And if they're doing a good job and they can also be the ones that help in the growing and cultivation processes for one of these companies, they should be allowed to do that as well. So 
in this part of curbing the illicit market, what are some prescriptions in policy-wise that you look at that would be some good solutions for these states and for these companies? Yeah, it's a great question for us. Like one of the the key sort of messages we try to bring to our clients is that um, you know your your goal of setting up a regulated market isn't to crush the illicit market; it's to usher them into the regulated market. And so, for legacy operators, you know, you make a good point that they should, for you know, the majority of them, they may be eligible for social equity um, programs. But you know, for us, like the the one of the things that I think should be considered more um, more often that maybe isn't is uh, things like licensing and application fees, right? Um, in order to bring in legacy market, you know, you need the barriers of entry to be relatively low or at least low enough to um, have them participate, right? Um, and so, you know, a good example of this is that we were asked to consult with a, a locality or a jurisdiction in California um, that was like maybe a, a square mile large. It was very, very small um, and had the median income, I think, was like 32000 a year was something around that. Um, and they sort of asked us, you know, what should our licensing or what should our application fee be? Um, because we're hearing that it should be close to, you know, 30000 Um, And we were like, that's... That's an, that's an insane amount of money when your median income is exactly that much, right? Um, and so, you know, wherever you're getting that information from, please, you know, we say with caution that, you know, application fee should, again, be ushering in the, the legacy operators who may have, uh, you know, need lower barriers to entry. Um, and, you know, to that point, you know, having... Um, well, no, you know what? I'll make this point. There was somebody I actually talked to yesterday, ironically, that was offering a uh, application service that's yeah. designated by state by state and i mm-hmm. want to give out that i'll just mention the name is cognitive uh, uh cognitive harmony technologies they're doing a thing where they're all they're trying to offer this application service for that lower barrier of entry because they talk mm-hmm. about and some of the consulting some of the services that will do the applications for you could cost as much as one hundred fifty thousand dollars. exactly which exactly, is yeah. r- ridiculous i don't even know how you start off on that i mean I mean, how much of the funding is going to be taken away that they've already been given to even get the license in the first place? Right. And and actually, thank you for bringing it because that was the point that I was about to make was that you shouldn't need to hire a lawyer or a consultant to get through the application. <clears throat> the application should be, you know, it should be relatively easy enough for, for people in the in the you know legacy operator world to come into the uh, to come into the to the regulated field. Uh, you know, we consult with a state that. Um, thankfully has changed their processes, has changed their application dramatically um, for new license types because they were getting um, insight that they were having, that applicants were having to pay a quarter of a million dollars to half a million dollars just to be able to get through the the application. So you set up systems like that and they're bound to bar people from entry. Um, And that's aside from the social equity piece, right? Where, you know, there's a million different barriers for social equity programs as well. So, I didn't want to make too much of a point, but anyway, if anyone wants to listen to that episode, it's uh, under grassroots marketing. I talked to Jordan Smith, who's their chief operations officer. It's, it's an option, but I'm just saying they wanted to make something so it would be that somebody, just someone like you or me, could go ahead and fill out that application yourselves. Like kind of a legal Zoom for the licensing process. So I'll just make that point there. If you want to listen to more about that, I have it on the grassroots marketing series. It's already available. Uh, with that said, we want to make it, this is, this is all good. Plus, not to mention that you're not just offering this report. 
but there's also services we're going to talk about in terms of the solution model. We're going to talk about what's called the Cannabis Policy Stimulation Simulation Lab. We're going to talk about that after a short break. I'm again here with Dr. Michael Sofas, Director of Research, and Mackenzie Slade, Director of Cannabis Public Policy Consulting. Website is CannabisPublicPolicyConsulting.com. Take a look at the website as we go to break. Rolling into some sponsors, but we'll be right back with more Blunt Business. I'm here with final questions for Dr. Michael Sofas and Mackenzie Slade, respectively of Cannabis Public Policy Consulting here on Blunt Business. And so it's not just a study. It's not just the numbers, not just the data crunching. Cannabis Public Policy Consulting will also use this RDCOS, which I'm going to just refer to one more time. It's the Regulatory Determinants of Cannabis Outcomes Survey, which will come out quarterly, beginning with spring 2022. And you're going to be using this as a data source for what you have called the Cannabis Policy Simulation Lab. It is the only predictive modeling tool that identifies the outcomes, contingencies, and dependencies of future state-level cannabis legalization. So imagine this is something you'd have in the public sector where these reports are generated. Then you have all these scenarios and you kind of integrate what you've learned in the study into creating outcomes, contingencies, and dependencies, all these different ideas to look for solutions. So talk to me a little bit more about the lab. Yeah, so what we do is we take the the regulatory outcome survey and we basically say, okay, we, we, we integrate all this data from policies, from states, sub-state areas, localities, and we bring it all together into one big database. And we look at the outcomes and as it relates to these policies. So if policy X is implemented in you know, some state, right, what happened um, to cannabis use disorder, what happened to, you know, uh, total market sales, what happened to the number of medical cannabis patients, or what have you, right? And, uh, you know, or another example is if you, you know, have this many dispensaries per capita upon launching an adult use market, this is what you saw in X state, you know, versus Y state, right? And that's sort of the, the backbone of it. And so what it allows us to do is using you know, these tens of thousands of of folks' data across these multiple time points each quarter of the year, and then all of this other policy data, it allows us to sit down with a a state or a county or other another type of locality and say, okay, you want to do X or you have problem, this this problem. Let's say your illicit sales are really sky, you're really high. They're disproportionate. You're an opt-in, you know, area. So you opted in to have adult use, right? And you want to know uh, how many, and you, know, you want to set maybe a local cap for how many dispensaries should be, how many stores should be there, right? To be to maximize public health, so you don't have too many stores while also having, you know, you know having enough that you can actually really curb the illicit market because illicit market is related to a lot of negative public health outcomes more so than actually value market right um, and so if you and so what we've done is we like you know we've done one for a bunch of you know states now where essentially we take we say okay literally if you were to have this many dispensaries per capita like exactly that number this is what you would see in the percentage of regulated sales in your area so like how many of the total cannabis grams that are consumed or accessed in your area are legally accessed versus not right that number is going to go up 
you know, in a, in a straight line for a while, and then it's going to flatten off real quick. So in other words, after a certain point, it's not, you're not getting anywhere, you know, being for your buck, so to speak. If you add an additional one, if anything, you're creating more administrative burden for the state and the locality and potentially increasing risk for public health harms. So there are these sweet spots, if you will, where you can actually get the best for both public health and for um, a regula- the regulated market and, and economic outcomes as well for, for society. And so that's really the goal of this is saying, you know, it, it's it's allowing people to have a you know state regulators or local local uh, folks to have um, data in their hands. They're actually thinking carefully about it. They know ahead of time what's likely to happen if they engage in the option. So we present multiple options. You could do this policy. You could do this policy. You could do this policy. This is what's likely to happen based on essentially millions of other data points that we've collected together. Um, and we think it's pretty pretty unique in that sense. Now let's go ahead and put everything full circle. So the, in the, in the organization that's consulting in the name and the consulting side, you make a point on your website that you're the only firm in cannabis consulting that neither works for the industry nor can advocates for cannabis legalization. Your clients are policymakers, ancillary businesses, and researchers. And you're focused on data-informed development and implementation of legalization policies, creating safe, equitable, and efficient markets, promoting economic opportunities, and protecting public health and safety. And there's various number of things that you're doing within this. So give me a focus on what the consulting side entails and what what you provide yeah that's a great question um so you know we have now worked with over 20 governments on the issues of cannabis um, policy whether it be something like the application process like i just spoke to previously um or you know things like trying to avoid burdensome litigation that is just unnecessary and holds up the industry from launching um like something an example you could look at illinois something like trying to prevent something like that from happening, um, you know, helping measure markets, anything like that, that can sort of help uh, make uh, regulators better at making policy informed decision making, right? So, for example, we just came out with a report for the state of Maine, um, the Office of Cannabis Policy over there, looking at the health outcomes associated with each market, uh, as well as the total share uh, of the population for each market. Uh, and we found some really interesting findings there uh, that can be translated into policy, right? And that's our whole sort of consulting spiel: is that if you're going to make uh, if you're going to make decisions around policy, they should have either a best practice or data that is empirical to support them, right? We don't want, uh, you know, we are public health professionals and we're, we sort of uh, are an anomaly to our field in that, um, you know, a lot of the, the policies that are presented in the name in the name of public health are rather arbitrary. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for us, you know, we do the research to make sure that, you know, do these policies actually have the efficacy that is being assumed? Um, and if not, they're overly burdensome and, and maybe we don't need them. So we helped the state of Maine, for example, in this case, um, understand what localities had um, higher willingness to pay for, uh, what zip codes had higher willingness to pay for adult use cannabis that had not yet opted in. Um, and so that's a great sort of a indicator to say, you know, in these localities, uh, these could be target potential targets for um, adult use stores to to operate and to be successful mm-hmm. in uh, and protective for public health outcomes, right? Like driving under the influence of cannabis or cannabis use disorder. Um, so that that's just sort of an example of how we use data to consult on policy decisions. Mackenzie, I'm glad you brought up Maine 
because I know I've talked to, uh, it was a guest I had on <clears throat> our grassroots marketing series, and I'm actually going to repurpose it on Blunt Business on a future episode, mm-hmm. where they talked about in Maine, the Cannabis Control Board was trying to implement one version of seed-to-sale tracking software, the most one of the most, more expensive ones in the market. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those things where and it's metric and I'm not, we're not judging, you know, the, the, how good it is, but to have only one particular service be the standard bear for all MSOs or all operators, small or large or whatever mid size, <clears throat> that they would make it, that it would be the only seed to sale tracking software available. Is mm-hmm. that something that you would have known about when it comes to the state of Maine? And if we can avoid where there's going to be still some competition with, among providers and what can be used to track, trace, and, you know, submit information towards that cannabis control board in each state. Yeah, so that's not an uncommon thing. It's actually the standard status quo is that the right. um, the governments will put out an RFP and there's a very rigorous evaluation process for the respondents to of track and trace their seed to sale systems to put forward. Um, and, you know, it's this theory of centralization, right, that the, that the government oh. should um, have these sort of centralized access to each inventory. Um, there are seed to sale mechanisms that are not um, sort of uh, centralized. There's a, a, a company called NCS Analytics um, that is, I believe, the only decentralized software process, or excuse me, track and trace process. Um, yeah, I mean, that, like I said, that's sort of the standard. And, and in the Cole memo, that sort of traceability piece was outlined. Um, so it is important that states have it for purposes of not just public safety, but um, public health as well. And um, yeah. Well, I would just love for me that there's a particular set of information that is required. But mm-hmm. if there's at least some options on other software or just to make it aware that there's a standard, you know, software that's going to be affordable for everybody to be able to use. Yeah. So um, I do. I mean, the, I'm not so familiar with the cost structure. I'll say that out loud um, because yeah. it, we don't consult. Um, it, we especially don't consult on uh, seed to sale or track and trace for states because that's just a, a sort of an RFP process that we would never want to sure. um, be involved with. Um, but that being said, you know, uh, I know st- we work with a, a tribe currently um, who had that sort of question of we don't we don't want to put this cost on our operators because they already have you know such you know barriers and hurdles to cross being that they are independently owned from the tribe um, they are just tribal members who are you know being entrepreneurial and so um, the tribe actually started to d- decided to incur the cost of the track and trace system for each. Um, operator so that it was a cost to the program and not to the, to the operator. Um, the likelihood of that happening at a state level would probably not happen in the same uh, fashion. Um, but the, you know, price is a, is a genuine concern. And like we said, it is a barrier to entry for especially the legacy operators. Um, but it is vital. So I think that there's, it's a bit of a policy corridor to explore. And these are some of the things I just noticed within that. I'm, I'm really glad you were able to answer some of these questions on this because there are a lot of costers being accrued. Then I think there's some small and mid-sized business owners that want to jump in. They want to get into the licensing. They get, want, want to get, take advantage of the social equity aspect of the licensing, make their businesses possible. But there's also these other things I want to point out to make sure that you're aware of. So does that seed to sale tracking? That is going to, it's going to be a cost, a regular cost of things. And we're not even talking about compliance yet, which is another. <laughs> thing but we don't have enough time for it if i i guess we're just going to bring you back at some point but uh you know what what please do keep us in touch and apprised of any new service that come along and i really appreciate agn who uh, helped to put this interview together 
Uh, we've worked with her uh, previously on another organization, which is really great. And I just want to say that this is really good information, and I hope a lot of people will get a chance to go and read this report. So, uh, so as we wrap things up, I want to go and just let people know about when it comes to the survey we've talked about throughout the program, when it comes to learning about the survey and what details are out there that the public can learn about. Obviously, on the website, you have it there, CannabisPublicPolicyConsulting.com. Just take us through a few things that you have on the website you want to make sure that listeners take advantage of. Yeah, so we have um, we have the sort of pilot report available right now if everyone would like to go see the sort of preliminary data points. Um, the other things that we have on there are just we're sort of building a repository of research uh, to date, uh, a lot of which Dr. Sophus has authored um, as the principal investigator of a lot of studies. Um, and we're starting, like I said, we're starting to sort of compile those pieces of research to say, you know, is this regulation or is this policy um, actually uh, effective uh, in its intent? Um, and so we're, we have sort of those resources. And then we also have the sort of uh, entrance to the sim lab. So there's a bit of a teaser on there uh, of a case study that we, we, uh, performed uh, regarding the state of Rhode Island's licensee cap, trying to establish, you know, if we increase this many licensees uh, for their adult use program, what do the markets sort of look like in terms of share of illicit versus regulated? So um, just sort of teasers, you can get a little bit more familiar because I know when we speak about it, it's really just like abstract numbers. So having, you know, graphs to look at and things like that should be really helpful. Um, and yeah. And then we, of course, have our contact us button and our, you know, subscribe to, to our information as well. So we do have a a weekly newsletter we are working on. So when you enter the site, you should be able to enroll in that and get some sort of weekly insights from us. Fantastic. So I appreciate you taking time out. I learned a lot from here and I'm glad that the kind of discussions we have here are continuing on with Cannabis Public Policy Consulting, CPPC. Thank you both for being on with us again. I've been here with Director of Research, Dr. Michael Sofas and Director Mackenzie Slade with Cannabis Public Policy Consulting. Thank you so much for being on the show. Really great information. Thank you for taking time out, and let's definitely keep in touch. Thanks, Jorge. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. And thank you, listeners, for listening in, as you always do. I hope you get a lot of feedback from this. And if you have any feedback for the show, or if you have any guests you think we should bring on, topics we should talk about more, please reach out to me, Brasco, B-R-A-S-C-O, at CannabisRadio.com. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast, republication, or retransmission of this program without proper consent is prohibited.